I think about how digital platforms are incrementally improving the way that we're able to deliver care that we're delivering today or creating completely new methodologies for delivering care. Welcome to AI in the Wild, a weekly discovery show focused on helping professionals across industries apply AI technology in their organizations. I'm your guide, Mina Sleeb, and through focused interviews with founders, investors, and corporate executives, we distill complex AI technology down to basic business solutions. With that, let's get into the show. Today, I'm grateful to have on Jake Mendel, an entrepreneur turned banker, working with Silicon Valley Bank's early stage practice, where he advises promising seed stage startups on fundraising and growth strategies. We'll be getting to all things startups and specifically focusing on the digital health space, an area that Jake has spent a lot of time in. For context, Jake has operated startups in several industries ranging from retail brands, SaaS platforms, to medical devices and early stage biotech companies. With that said, let's meet Jake. But before we get started, I just want to say thank you. Huge shout out to SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, for uh, allowing us to host Basic AI here and uh, giving us uh, Jake for the afternoon. And with that, what's up, brother? Thank you very much for being on today. Yeah, pleasure's mine. I'm, I'm excited for this. I'm, I'm pumped. We've, we've been trying to schedule this for a little bit. Uh, Jake's schedule has been crazy. Mine's been crazy. But finally, we're on. We're back. I'm very, very, uh, very excited for all of you to get an opportunity to hear from Jake. It's funny. We, we've sat here for five minutes, and I've already learned like eight things I didn't know about Jake. <laughs> he's, he's one of the most well-rounded people I've, I've come to meet. And I want people to kind of get a sense of your background. So if you could just tell us like how you got started, how'd you get here? How'd you get to New York? I know you're not from here. So yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess talking about kind of where I am today and then we can kind of work backwards from there. So uh, I'm part of Silicon Valley Bank's early stage practice um, based here in New York. And I'm working with companies from like day one, articles of incorporation, you know, two girls, laptop, ID on a napkin, not really anything else there. Uh, up through up through a Series A, um, and so I get to spend all of my time hanging out with founders and and you know learning about what they're working on and and seeing how I can be helpful, um, which is such an awesome place to be, uh, especially when it comes to learning about new tech like digital health and AI. Um, what really drove me here? So I guess dialing way back. Um, so I'm the son of a uh, physician. My dad's a neurosurgeon. And, you know, starting when I was very, very, very young, I was always attracted to healthcare. I was fascinated by it, um, surgery in particular. Uh, and, you know, I, I was that kid that was like lugging around my dad's like anatomy textbooks in, you know, uh, in, um, and so I've, I've just, I've been fascinated by the space. Um, and, you know, the, the surgery part was interesting, you know, the blood, the needles, all that kind of never bothered me, but it was actually seeing him have to deliver a very um, unfortunate prognosis that when I when I witnessed that, I was like, I don't think that I can do this. Interesting. Um, as fascinated as I am with the space, I don't know how you, you know, tell somebody that you lost a patient on the table or that, you know, right. diagnose someone with cancer and then come home to your family every day and like, yeah, able to deal with that. And so that's, you know, he's a world class surgeon, but I think his superpower is his ability to internalize that and and not let it kind of come back to us. Yeah. And so, you know, since then, I've been thinking about, OK, well, if I'm not going to be a surgeon, where can I have the biggest impact uh, on healthcare in life sciences? And so 
I guess, fast forward while I'm in business school, having, I guess, come out of undergrad with a couple of startup opportunities under my belt, including one that gloriously flamed out uh, from under me that led me to go to business school so that I could avoid getting a corporate job. And, you know, because I'd gotten very close with Ohio State's uh, business school dean, she said, you know what? You might as well come and get your MBA. Um, you know, your, your carpet's probably not the right fit for you. And, um, you know, you, you have too much fun with this kind of stuff. So, yeah, just just come to business school. And it was funny because actually at the same time, um, my dad was thinking about going to business school. No and so way. actually, yeah, so the two of us um, actually joined Ohio State's uh, working professional MBA program together. Wait, same class? Same class. No way. Um, and so he ended up actually going into their executive MBA program, which was kind of a better fit for him long term. Um, and I just was not getting what I needed out of the working professional program. And so I actually dropped into the full-time program for a while. Um, and actually, while I was there, I was introduced to an organization called our Technology Commercialization Office, which is basically responsible for all of Ohio State's intellectual property um, and all the licensing deals, basically like if you're a professor and you discover something, you develop some new IP, that office helps you license that out for commercial opportunities or if you want to spin it out as a startup, um, they're the ones that actually help support that. Right. And so I spent as much time at this organization as possible because this is where all the professors that were doing interesting work were actually hanging out, yeah. right? Um, that's a, just, just for our listeners, that's available at most universities, right? They it have, is intellectual property, patent offices, and things like that, where you can actually start commercializing some of that research. Right, um, which, is, which is terrific because, you know, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm pretty hypercritical about, you know, the venture industry in general, which I think is a challenge, you know, as compared to, to some other industries, is like if you think about uh, entertainment, if you think about sports, you know, if you're world-class, if, Le- if you're LeBron James, right, you have to be amazing at basketball, but you also don't have to become a world-class contract attorney, right? You can right. bring somebody in that can handle that for you. Um, but if you're a founder, right, if you're, if you're a world-class researcher that discovers some new single molecular entity that you think can be the next oncology therapeutic, yeah. you know, uh, a VC comes to you and says, amazing, here's some money, but you also need to become a world-class CEO and recruiter and salesperson. And, oh, by the way, you need to continue to do this stuff for the product. Right. And so, you know, I think that's, that's a challenge with this industry, and especially when you're dealing with something that takes years and years and years of study as life sciences typically do, you know, you need to become hyper-specialized. And so, you know, I think the best technology commercialization offices that exist are the ones that are able to help professors bridge the gap from the bench to actually getting a product out in market. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're going to talk about AI in a little bit, but that is one of the biggest things we see, right? You get a lot of researchers, machine learning PhDs, experts, all this stuff, trying to commercialize research, but at the end of the day, they're not quote-unquote entrepreneurs, right? Like, how do they actually bridge that gap? How do they become those entrepreneurs? Right, yeah, you know, I, I think about this in terms of, like, New York versus Boston a lot, right? Um, you know, Boston's ranked number one in terms of NIH grant funding, right? $1.6 billion, I yeah. believe. Um, New York's ranked number two. I think it's 1.4. It's, it's pretty tight. For every dollar of funding that Boston companies get from the NIH, they're able to generate another dollar and 60 cents in terms of venture investment. Wow. For every dollar of NIH grant funding that New York companies are able to receive, they generate six cents in venture investment. Six? Six cents. And so if you look at the disparity between those two things, what's really the biggest difference here? The quality of research is obviously there. New York has some of the best research institutions in the world, and nobody disputes that. Right. And so is it a cultural phenomenon? Is it experience? 
Um, you know, that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about because I, I think it's unclear. And I think if we can crack that, that's really going to take New York to the next level in terms of life sciences. Where I'm seeing that happen, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, what I think is actually going to lead the charge for New York is digital health. Okay. That's, you know, okay. we're, we're seeing so much activity there. Um, and so we'll, we'll dig back into that later. So I'm hanging out with the TCO yeah. and I, uh, I meet a researcher who's working on um, some imaging technology called magnetic resonance elastography. I was working on that last week. <laughs> um, so MRE, uh, you know, at a high level, what it does is they take a device and they basically put it over an organ and they stick you in an MRI and this device vibrates at a timed sequence um, that basically displaces your tissue that's timed with the pulse sequences of the MRI, right? And they can actually, using machine learning algorithms, look at this data to generate a basically a 3D uh, map of the material properties of your tissues without a physical biopsy. Whoa. Right? Um, and so this was, this was like probably my first introduction to, you know, diagnostics as a whole, and especially diagnostics that are using really, really, really complicated imaging to be able, or uh, complicated algorithms on the back end to be able to produce something that's actually usable for physicians. Right. And you think about that and you're like, okay, so what? Why does that matter? How does that, you know, change the way that we actually deliver care? Mm -hmm. So so let me walk you through an example that, you know, um, my, my neurosurgeon father would love. Um, so when he's prepping for surgery, right, and he's got an image that he's looking at, and he sees a scan and there's clearly a tumor in there, he doesn't know if that's a soft tumor or a hard tumor. Mm. If it's a hard tumor, his you know, the way that he operates his approach, he has to go and he has to cut a huge circle in the skull to be able to remove this thing out as a whole, right? If it's a soft tumor, he can drill a tiny, tiny, tiny hole and basically suck it out with a straw, right? Um, gross oversimplification, but if you think about that, um, the recovery time for somebody that has a massive hole in their head is probably going to be a lot longer than somebody who doesn't. And when your recovery time's longer, when you have a larger, um, you know, more invasive sites, you know, it just, everything becomes more complicated and more expensive. However, most of the time, the way that he has to, um, you know, the way that he has to actually approach this is he has to just assume that it's going to be a large tumor. And the reason for that is, well, you can't get in there and physically biopsy the tumor ahead of time, because that's extremely dangerous for the patient, especially if it's, you know, a, a brain tumor that's lodged somewhere deep. And so now with technologies like MRE, he can actually use that data to dictate the approach that he uses to go in and remove this tumor, which is changing the way that he thinks about treatment. Um, so that's like, that's when I get really excited, I think, about AI and digital health and uh, diagnostics and just all these things that are happening is like, these are all super esoteric concepts, but when you really boil it down, it's giving us the tools that we need to deliver care in a way we've really never been able to do before. And that's what I get really excited about, right? Right. So, you know, I, you know, I met this professor. I spent several months kind of digging into this tech, um, eventually brought in some, some pretty senior engineering folks at GE to look at it. And ultimately, um, I ended up getting distracted by something that was a little bit more exciting for me, um, which... <laughs> has a tendency to happen to me, but um, which ended up becoming uh, the last company that I was at before this role. Um, and so that company is called Reheba Biosciences. I met a, actually thanks to Silicon Valley Bank, um, SVB actually selected me as a student um, as part of our university trek program where we bring out, you know, one or two students from now 21 schools we're partnered with uh, in the U.S. and internationally out to the Bay to tour kind of all the top tier 
VC funds and accelerator programs. You were just there, right? Yeah, I was just there. So now it's it's funny. So I went through this program four years ago as a student, right? Uh, and I I actually get to co lead the program now that I'm I'm here at SVB, which is which is fun. And I tell you what, um, seeing how insanely impressive these students are now, I don't know that I would have I would have made the cut. Um, one person relevant to this, I want to give a shout out to to give you an idea of like the kinds of people we're dealing with. So Kavya Koparapu is a freshman at Harvard that we brought this year, um, just sent me a note that she was selected by, was it was it Science Magazine? Basically as like one of the 20 most influential teens in science because she is, freshman at Harvard, mind you, is developing an AI-driven precision medicine platform for glioblastoma, which is a malignant, aggressive brain tumor. She's 18 years old. Yeah, same. Right? Yeah. So, you know, you can imagine you can imagine the ego check from that. So wow. I went on this program and uh, I met Xenia Call, who was like, you know, similar to Kavya, world-class scientist and, you know, was finishing up her fellowship in cancer genetics while getting her MBA at the same time. And uh, and she leaned over to me on the on the last day. Obviously, we'd grown kind of close over these four days. She goes, you know, I'm working on something and uh, I, I could use some help. And and that's how that's how I joined uh, the founding team for for Reheva Biosciences, and so did that for about a year and a half. The company's developing an early stage um, oncology therapeutic. Um, the company was actually approved just a couple months ago for their investigational new drug application, Snaps. Um, which is basically the FDA saying you can start clinical trials, and nice. so hopefully we'll see them uh, kicking off clinical trials in 2019 um, for this oncology therapeutic. So um, did that with Xenia for about a year and a half, was able to step into an advisory role, uh, like I said, about a year and a half ago, got introduced by my old manager at SVB to our current managing director for early stage on the East Coast. had literally never been to New York City before. Yeah, yeah, you told me that when we first met. That was really sad. I was, I was upset for you, but now you're here. Yeah, that's so, right. So that was a very long-winded uh, story of how I got to where I am now, and you know, that's why I love this job so much because I've sat in that founder seat, right? Like I know how stressful it is to like put payroll on a credit card, and right. you know, so your team can eat. And so now that I get to spend every day with founders that are doing, you know, changing the way we think about medicine and healthcare, um, but I still have a paycheck and health insurance, like it's, I could not be any happier than, than where I landed. You get me just mad pumped about like, like how many things do we just talk about? We talk about, you know, AI, biomedicine, it's, it's amazing. Um, but can you tell me, how would you define digital health? Like what, what's the difference? Like we talk about healthcare, health tech, digital health, biomedical, like instruments, things like that. Like, but like digital health itself, are they all, is it all the same? Is it? You know, is it, can we categorize in a different way? What, what do you think? I think that's a tough question. I think if you put, if you took 10 digital health experts and put them in a room and asked them the same question, I think you would get 10 totally different answers. Yeah, um, but I think the reason for that is actually because of the pace of innovation that we're seeing in the sector right now. Um, so where I think about digital health, okay. and I know that that's very broad, um, and so I think it's helpful to think about this in terms of buckets. So like, I think the four big kind of categories that I think about healthcare in general, you've got kind of biopharma and therapeutics, right? Things that are actually trying to deliver therapies. And we're seeing a lot of interesting innovation in digital health in that sector. Sure. Um, diagnostics, which is like, okay, we're going to diagnose disease. You have to know what something is before you attempt to treat it, right? Um, we've got medical devices, Right. And then, you know, digital health, you're kind of seeing across the board is having impact. And then the last piece is kind of like workflow optimization tools, things that you would traditionally think about 
as tech companies, right, right. Um, that happen to be operating in the healthcare sector. And this is improving everything from operations to finance, right? right. And, and that would be like an example of that could be like a flat iron, right? Where, where they're collecting data, they're making that. Man, so flat iron, flat iron is interesting. And we could spend this whole podcast kind of talking about them. And they're, I mean, they're kind of impacting things across the board. And, you know, I think their approach to digital health in that they're getting experts, not just, you know, not just a brilliant technologist, not just a brilliant clinician, but putting all of these people in these really cross-functional teams in the same room and saying, here's the problem. Let's go figure out a solution right. to fix it. But also keeping in mind all of these digital tools and platforms that did not exist 5, 10, 15 years ago. Even going back three years ago, like the advancements that we've seen in the space is absurd. You see a lot in therapeutics, a lot in drug discovery, a lot in like, uh, you know, using RNA, um, RNA techniques and, and using machine learning like that. In terms of like you talked, you talked a little bit about the tumor example and um, when you started really getting excited for the the opportunities that you know machine learning AI can bring to the healthcare space. Um, why is it the time right now for for you know universities and um, hospitals and, and things like that to be thinking about how to leverage AI? When you think about AI at a high level um, and and machine learning and and you know the things that really what you would define as AI, what it really comes down to is data, right? Right, and more importantly, it's like the quality of the data, and you know, eighty five percent of you know communication in medicine right now with with electronic medical records or excuse me with medical records is like done by fax right i mean wow. even even today still still and but we're very quickly moving in the opposite direction and so in terms of your question of like why is now the best time i think you're seeing folks are finally re realizing how valuable this data is and more importantly it's becoming mandatory that we put these things on uh digital platforms right you know finally we've got legislation that says your medical records have to be electronic like that's that is not something that we had 20 years ago. Right. Um, and so when you put that as the base layer, you've got these data sets that are growing in terms of size and quality. And you're also having folks, you know, thinking a lot more about how can we leverage this data for all of these different sectors. So um, that's why I think now is the best time. The other piece, too, is if you think about from the provider standpoint, my dad is a brilliant surgeon, but I'm pretty certain he still types with two fingers, right? right? Um, and, and that's okay, right? That was okay in his that's role fine. for the longest time. Like, you want him to be a world-class surgeon. You don't want him to be able to type 120 words a minute. Right. But if you think about the people that are in medical school today, hmm. right? These are folks, I mean, they're our age, Mina, yeah. right? They, you know, they were born in the dark. Right. They know, they know how to use these tools and their, their willingness and their ability to adapt and, and learn new tech is something we've simply never seen in this industry before. Um, and so I think that's, that's another piece of it is one, on the tech side, like we're getting smarter about data, we're building better tools, but just the willingness to adopt new solutions at the people who are really driving these decisions at the, at the provider level is really, I think, what's going to unlock this next kind of big exponential curve for us. That's interesting. In, in healthcare, we you bring up a really good point. I've heard the I've heard the data explanation. Right, we have a lot of data, and now we're starting to structure it and this and that. But it really could be just that you know the next generation is taking over healthcare, right, and are actually making decisions to actually implement this new future, where you know they're kind of 
we're becoming cyborgs, right? In a way where, you know, we are hand in hand with our iPads and there are like all, a bunch of my friends are doctors. They're walking around with their iPads, checking in patients and, and things like that. So, I mean, if you think about that, like, you know, we, we have a, a mutual acquaintance, Natalie Fratto, who's, mm-hmm. who's on my team here at SVB. Um, and, and she's been in the press lately for this concept of adaptability quotient, right? Like yeah. we know what IQ is, we know what EQ is, but your ability to adapt may actually be the metric that will signal success better than anything else. Yes. And so I think what you, what you are seeing right now is the folks that are being trained to be the next generation of providers are much, much, much more adaptable than any cohort we've ever seen before. And that's going to, they're going to pull these solutions in instead of what historically has been the case, which has been, it's been pushed. Right. Interesting. You earlier you brought up uh, the point of data, right? And you, you're starting to get this argument: who actually owns the data, right? Where do you think we're going with that? Where patients are starting to be like, who actually owns my data? Can I own my data? I want to streamline this process. If I want to go to a bunch of providers, I can just you know give them access to my data because it's mine, and I don't have to go through all these you know processes to actually access this thing that is actually mine. Where do you see us going with that? Okay, let's 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 get real narrow. Let's talk about genetic data. Okay, your genome. I'm scared. You know, I'm 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 scared. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm scared. Because, you know, if you think about like we really don't have like a GDPR for genetic data. And you know, I'm on my dad's side. Both of you know, both my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, right? And at some point, someone made the decision that like we were going to round up this group of people because of this they happen to have this kind of, let's call it genetic data, um, round them all up and, uh, and well, they can't have jobs and they can't, you know, uh, have commerce and let's put them all in a bunch of camps and we know how that all turned out. It's, it's sad. Yeah. And so then I think about the future and I think about what we're seeing in terms of like CRISPR and gene editing right now. And right. And you've blown up on the news. You've got this Chinese scientist. We've got the first child to be born with like an edited genome. Like everyone kind of thought this was 10, 15, 20 years out and we're living in it today. Right. Um, by the way, he like, he's missing and I don't think they've found him, right? <laughs> they've definitely got him locked up. I highly doubt they're going to find him. Um, so I think about the future. I think about the future and where we're already at a point where we're, we're thinking about, okay, let's edit out disease, right? right? Um, but as we get smarter and better at this, as we have more and more access to data, we're going to start being able to make humans smarter, faster, stronger, living longer. Now you've got a population of folks who are simply superhuman. Right. But is that tech going to be available to everyone from the get-go? I don't know. And, and then are we going to start saying, okay, well, this is, these are, this is a lesser population. They're, they're sick. They're, you know, have access, like they still have genetic diseases. Like we don't want them to be able to marry. We don't want them to be able to be around us. And all of a sudden we've got another Holocaust on our hands. So when I think about data, Mina, I'm, that's what I'm the most nervous about, um, at least in the long term. In the short term, I don't necessarily want insurance companies having access to my uh, my genetic data because uh, that's going to get priced into my premiums. Right. But um, so that's I guess that's a little bit how I'm thinking about it. Interesting. Yeah. Took a dark turn there. No, no, that was it was so real because I actually was just having this conversation. It is the real life version of the Aryan race, right? Like that's basically what it what it is. That was. It's, but if anybody has the opportunity to watch a movie called Gattaca, it, it's, I mean, it's basically what I'm kind of describing here. So this is not an original idea of mine by any means. And, you know, I, I love sci-fi movies. Like if you ask anybody that knows me well, like if you look at my pleasure reading, half of it is science fiction. The other half is like peer-reviewed science. I've got like a stack of nature journals sitting on my desk. You know, he's not kidding. Like some people just say, yeah, I, I, watch, I read this, I watch this. And it's so true. 
And the first time we met, I was I was so blown away by like, wow, that's so nerdy, but like so cool that you you do all that. You gotta own it. Yeah, you do. You gotta own it. it. You absolutely own it. I love it. Um, Gattaca. Okay, that's that's the wreck. Uh, everybody watch Gattaca. Let's get back to let's get back to some AI ML applications that you're seeing. What are what are some good use cases that you're actually seeing being implemented, whether it's in therapeutics or in just you know platforms, digital health, the usage of like collecting data, like a you know a flat iron does. Do you have you have some good thoughts or some ideas on good applications that you've seen? So this is maybe going to be a little boring, but we're you know I think for most of those sectors that I was just describing to you. We're still at kind of like a learning to crawl stage, right? Um, the biggest challenge, kind of going back to the data, is we just don't have clean data sets, right? If you talk to if you talk to you know the folks at Pfizer, the folks at Novartis, um, you know they're you know I, I was reading this article um, about uh, it was actually the CEO of Novartis who came out and, and it was a great Forbes article on on kind of why is it so hard to bring tech into the pharma space, right? Why, you know, there's so much excitement about this. Like everyone's talking about uh, AI for drug discovery. Um, but they spend so much time cleaning the data yeah. that it makes it really challenging. So where am I actually seeing the biggest impacts today? Um, it's ops and finance. Interesting. It's ops and finance. Uh, so if you think about like managing a clinical trial, it's really hard based on the data sets that we have right now to think about um, you know, discovering new applications or finding new patients or et cetera. But in terms of actually managing trials that already exist for success, being able to anticipate patient drop-off or, hey, is this clinical trial going to enroll on time and this one's not? Right. I mean, patient enrollment is such a big piece to this that people never really kind of think about unless you're in the ecosystem. Just optimizing that piece is going to drive down the cost of drug discovery. Right. Um, and I mean, if you think about this, I've actually... I've actually got a, a quote here I'm going to read. If you think about how how impossible, like every drug that we discover is a miracle. Right. Right. Is a miracle. The money that goes into it, the time that goes into it. And humans are so complicated that it's easy to kind of scoff at. But it's like, you know, so I'm, I'm going to read this quote here. And, you know, every human being is 40 trillion cells working together. We only understand a fraction of these proteins, what they do. There's like 1,200 druggable proteins. And, you know, there's only a fraction of those that we can actually drug. We don't know what most of RNA does, non-coding RNA. We don't know most of what the genome is even talking about. Since the creation of the FDA, there's only been about 1,500 uh, new molecular entities ever found. Wow. And most of these are overlapping in similar therapeutic areas, right? If you account for double counts, it's probably in the hundreds of medicines that we've actually found. Right. And think about how much money gets poured into yeah. uh, gets gets poured into medicine every year. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think about that, and it's like it blows my mind. Like we've we've barely scratched the surface. So I I still think we're in early days. I think we're very much in early days in terms of seeing the impact that um, AI is going to have in the realm of like drug discovery and therapeutics. But we're already seeing it on the op side. Right. And again, if we can make the cost of running these trials lower, hopefully that means we're going to be able to spend those resources in discovering new therapeutic areas, or it's going to drop the cost of um, you know drugs in right. the United States. Like that's a huge problem. You think about all the activity we see in you know, uh, immuno-oncology nowadays, which, you know, I everyone's super excited about. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, $750,000 a year for a treatment? Wow. Who can afford that? Right. Can the insurance companies afford that? Sure. But, like, 
you know, so anything that we can do to drive down the cost of discovering these drugs, in theory, should drive down the prices. Now, there's some there's some complicated models in there, and I, I you know, we could spend a whole podcast kind of digging into that. But yeah, interesting. Yeah, I I I couldn't agree with that more actually because about two years ago, you started seeing a lot of image rec applications, especially in especially in radiology, right? We're going to detect cancer and ML is going to detect cancer and AI is going to take over radiologists. But the, the practical implementation of that technology is not necessarily what we thought it would be or we, we assume like, okay, the, you know, this, this bot can detect cancer, you know, 80 times faster than a human, right? But like actually implementing that tech and who has the liability and this and that, right? We're pretty far off from that. Yes. So let's like let's dig into that yeah. piece because I actually um, diagnostics is really interesting, and I think radiology in terms of like actually thinking about care is you know one of the sexiest spaces right now that we're seeing a ton of activity in. But here's the thing: we've actually computers have actually been able to diagnose uh, patients on images better than physicians since like the late 80s, early 90s, really? right? This is this is not a new phenomenon. Now, we've gotten even more effective with it. I mean, uh, overwhelmingly so over the right. last 20 years. But at that inflection point where, like, computers were better than humans, like, it's been a while. Right. So the tech is evolving way faster than our ethical and legal frameworks can keep up. Mm. That, to me, I think is the, the fundamental quandary of AI in healthcare. Right. If you think about the United States and how healthcare works, like tort law and who are you going to sue for malpractice if something goes wrong, um, is just a fundamental part of our healthcare system, and you can't really sue a computer, right? And so that's I think not yet, not yet, <laughs> not yet. Interesting. It's 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 quite funny. I know, like we assume because we are looking at startups, you know, day in day out, and then I talk to like you know, my friends that are actual doctors and practicing. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're not using it. Yeah, I, yeah, it's cool. It's nice. Uh, it's not happening because if they're wrong, I'm getting sued. Not that, you know. Um, and how do you, actually, how do you actually balance that? That's the issue. Super interesting. What have you seen the, bat, the biggest barrier outside of, let's say, data? I think unstructured data is one of the biggest barriers. Um, but another barrier that, that you see in the space that, it's just not catching on. You know, I think one thing that I, and this is really top of mind for me because all the companies that I'm working with are very early stage, is right. even if the tech is there, even if it works, understanding how to sell into a hospital system is really hard, right? Or into any kind of healthcare system is really hard and really complicated where the folks paying for stuff are not necessarily the same folks using stuff. And I mean... Enterprise sales in and of itself is really complicated, but then when you get to something that has so many tendrils in it as healthcare, that's a big challenge. Yeah. Um, the way that I'm starting to see folks overcome that is they're getting really smart about bringing on at like really the co-founder level um, providers and payers and folks that have spent a ton of time in the space, yep. right? Um, I think what you saw with the early crop of digital health companies was like really smart tech founders saying, I can build anything you want, but then failing, even if they built amazing solutions, to be able to actually sell it, right? Like there's this, there's this like thread going on Twitter a few weeks ago that it's like first time founders obsess over product, second time founders obsess over distribution. Yes. Distribution in healthcare is 
so critical because it's such a convoluted system that oftentimes it actually creates moats for, for these companies. So that's one of the big barriers that I see is just not having a fundamental understanding of the organization that you're selling into. Um, but candidly, I think that's like a pretty lame excuse. And, and I think smart teams are able to get around that by attracting that talent. Yeah. So it's either I've seen them either attract it or they partner early, right? They actually develop the, the solution with, with a university, with a hospital, wh whatever it may be, with a Novartis. Um, and I keep seeing that. And J&J &J Labs has their own thing where they're developing a bunch of startups coming out of there so yeah j labs finally has some has some space here in new york yeah. which you know that's that's been the long time everyone said well you know we don't see biotech companies in new york because there's no lab space you got j labs here you got biolabs here you yeah. got alexandria here um i know i'm forgetting folks because it's it's really kind of blown up but yeah i mean i think i think fundamentally that's like if you are going to be selling into this industry you have to have industry experts either at the founder level or very senior, very early on. Um, the partnering thing I think is interesting too. I think the hospitals are waking up to this. Um, I, I'm starting to actually see hospitals themselves on cap tables. No way. Which is like Northwell, you're seeing, oh, well, Northwell Ventures has a, has a venture on. Well, you know, obviously like I can't share anything right, right, right. in terms of any specific deals, but um, you know, we are, we are seeing an increased activity and a level of sophistication there in terms of their ability um, to add value to companies and being sensitive to the fact that like, maybe they probably shouldn't be leading rounds at this point, but right. participating and being comfortable with the valuations and whatnot. Um, so that's, that to me is very encouraging. Um, and then, you know, similarly, I think they're, they're becoming a little bit more uh, open to doing pilots with early stage companies. Okay. Um, so there's a, this really fantastic program here in New York um, that the New York City Economic Development Committee puts on um, where they've got their digital health marketplace where basically you can apply into this program and they will help you. Uh, they will make introductions for you um, to basically they match you with uh, corporates that are yeah. interested in this type of tech. And then you sit down and if there's a match, you jointly apply for a grant together. And NYCEDC and that organization and, and the folks kind of involved in that will actually pay for the pilot. Nice. Right? And so it's, it's, it's again, it's figuring out ways to eliminate the barriers to at least get your foot in the door um, and then converting those pilots into, into long-term contracts. Love that. For, for any healthcare professional, I know, we're, I know we're coming to a close and winding down, but for anybody in the healthcare field that kind of wants to make that transition over, what do you think they got to know before they, before they make this job, right? Like, they go and make this great discovery and then they, they want to come in, commercialize. You know, what's the biggest piece of advice? What's a skill that you think they need to develop before they, before they get in or just come in and try? Ooh, that's, that's tough. So I have a distinction between what I consider to be an inventor and an innovator. I think an inventor is somebody that is making new novel discoveries and an innovator is somebody who's actually able to convert those discoveries into, you know, a commercializable uh, entity, right? right? Um, that is the skill set that sets researchers, um, you know, you're kind of everyday brilliant researchers by all means, apart from the folks that are actually going to be able to cross that gap. Right. Um, and so that's the skill set I think that you need to develop is an understanding of how to translate things from the lab into actually being a product, a solution, something that people are willing to pay for that is adding value. And that's, I mean, that's tough. Yeah, that's a that is a hard skill set to develop. But that is where, you know, I think organizations like uh, commercialization offices, amazing accelerators like what you're running, organizations that can educate these folks. Because, look, I mean, anybody that's 
operating in the space that makes a discovery. Like you're talking about somebody that is three standard deviations away from the mean in terms of intelligence. These are very smart people, right? right? Like if they're smart enough to discover a new oncology therapeutic, they can learn how to fundraise, right? right? They, can, they can learn how to sell into an enterprise. Right. Um, and so, however, they need support. They don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, it is an open-mindedness to what you are researching to realize that like, this may not be something that has commercial viability and make sure that you are not, you know, developing a solution and then trying to find a problem for it and actually doing the reverse of that. Yes. Preach that. That is probably the biggest advice we can give to any founder, right? Just stop trying to find a problem. It's solve the problem that's actually there. Love that. Um, okay. Real quick. What's top three resources in New York that you would recommend for a digital health startup? So it, I guess it depends on what the need is, right? Um, if you are thinking about raising any kind of institutional capital, right. read Venture Deals by Brad Feld, okay. right? That's like, and, and that's kind of a throwaway answer because everybody gives that kind of advice. Um, but you should, you, you know, that's, that's kind of like, that's the Bible on, on uh, how do you raise Venture Dollars. Yeah. And how not to get screwed. And yes, that <laughs> even more importantly. Um, the second thing is um, find community, right? I think you need to find community if you're gonna operate in this space. Because again, there it's such a convoluted organism that is healthcare that there are gonna be so many blind spots that like if you can find community, and, and to get even more specific, find somebody operating in your space that's like 18 to 24 months out ahead of you. It's one of the best things that I've, I've ever done as an operator is build relationships with founders that are doing that. Because if you're talking to people that have already done it, yeah. at the pace innovation is happening right now, a lot of their advice may not be relevant and there's survivorship bias there. Sure. You're talking to somebody that's 18 to 24 months out, they're still in the thick of it. But more importantly, they dealt with the same problems that you were dealing with recently enough to be helpful. There are lots of places where you can go to find that community. Future Labs is a great example of that. Um, there are a lot of you know really strong uh, digital health accelerator programs uh, that are that are valuable. I think uh, if you're operating the space, so Startup Health is now putting out a print magazine, which I think uh -huh. is really which is really interesting. Um, and shout out to Andrew Solomon who helped me prep actually for for this interview. He's a, he's a good friend of mine over at Startup Health. And so, you know, again, you want to absorb resources. You want to spend time in the community. Like, you, you obviously need to be building great products, but at the same time, this is a very relationship-oriented business. And, you know, folks that can open doors for you at hospitals or payers or providers or whatever um, are relationships you're going to have to leverage. Um, and similarly, like, if you're an organization that's going to be scaling, like, talent, talent in this space is really hard to find, yeah. right? Somebody that has got a knack for being able to build a company, but also has operated in healthcare for 10 or 15 years. Like it's a, it's a rare breed of person. Um, and so that's why I think finding communities of these people is really critical. I think the last piece, and this is not necessarily specific. Okay, so I guess let's get specific to AI and digital health. Well, basic AI. Yeah. Listen to the podcast. I like that. Listen yes. to the podcast. Listen. Yes. Um, but I guess on, on, on that last topic, um, Think about the partners, right? Think about the partners. You, you know this about SVB and something I experienced when I was a client here and, you know, whether it's your, your lawyer or your bank or your accountant, you know, there are table stakes things that organizations can do for you, like checking accounts, right? Um, but there's a difference between a service provider and a partner, right? Find somebody that is really optimized for your long-term success, that can open doors from you, that can save you from mistakes that they've seen happen before 
and are willing to go to bat for you there. Um, and so I think regardless of if you're an operator in whatever space, like think long and hard about your partners um, from from early on. Yeah, I some people are like, oh yeah, he works at SVB, but like fine. But also you gotta know SVB to know where, where Jake's coming from with that, where you really wanna find, there's, you can find a banker, a lawyer, any of these, any of these providers anywhere, but picking the right one makes a huge difference, right? Picking people that actually care about your success. We've worked on, you know, several companies, you know, together where you advise or I advise and it makes a world of a difference. So I couldn't agree more with picking the right partners. Um, super important. And the, the last thing for you, what is, what is, how do you stay up to date with, with your knowledge, right? Where I, I what are you, what are you reading? Um, other than the journals, I know, well, let's say, let's say we can't get as scientific with the journals, but what are you reading? Twitter. Twitter? Yes. Okay. Twitter has like changed the way that I think about absorbing information. Right. Completely and, and participating in the conversation. Mm. Um, what is amazing about Twitter and the folks that really know how to use it, like if you had to ask me what is a better resume for me, I think Twitter's probably more effective than LinkedIn. Wow. Right? Because you can really kind of peel back the onion into somebody's brain and understand what they're thinking about, what's top of mind for them in real time. Yes. But more importantly, I think about world-class people that are on a platform like this that frankly, if you engage with, will probably engage back with you. So Samuel Shah, um, at, at Haystack was the one who kind of set me down this pathway. Cause before that I was like following all my friends and, you know, never paid attention because like, who cares? Right. Um, and someone's like, that's, you're doing it wrong, right? Use Twitter to join communities and, and to follow folks that you want to understand what they're thinking about and participate in the conversation. Um, so like there's nothing better than getting to watch two brilliant folks in this space, have a conversation back and forth about something that's top of mind for me. And I'm going to learn faster from that than just about anything else. So like, if you're not on Twitter, you should be on Twitter. Who's your favorite follow? Ooh, who's my favorite follow? That's really hard. Um, we'll give you two or three just so nobody's offended. <laughs> so I think, um, so on this kind of top, so Andy Sparks. Uh, so Andy Sparks was the COO of Mattermark. Now he's starting uh, a company called Holloway. Oh. Um, was at my alma mater of the Ohio State University. <laughs> the Ohio State. I love the way that Andy approaches Twitter. Like Andy's one of those people that I feel like you could actually, yeah, this is how it works. Like I frankly built a relationship with him um, briefly over Twitter. Um, I have never met Andy before in person and Andy and I are going to like, we're hosting an event for his new company here no uh, in February. Right. Wait, you've never met. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. Uh, and so like, I think about that. Um, and so like he is, he is somebody that like, if you want to learn how to use Twitter, follow Andy and see how he uses Twitter in terms. Um, I really enjoy following, um, Natalie Dillon. Yes, she is. She's a good follow. Anything like she puts out right in a single tweet, I can absorb everything there is to know on a space Super. or metrics. And and yeah, she's she's by far one of my favorite follows. Yeah. Um, so shout out Natalie. Um, and then yeah, I think those two. I'll leave I'll leave it with like those that. two. And like you know, that. you can always follow me on Twitter too. I'm just at i Jake Mendel. So selfish plug. I I follow you, and I would recommend others to follow you with that. Um, thank you. So, and one last thing, and Mina, yes. like this has been a blast. And, you know, this is kind of an open call for any of uh, the folks that are listening to your show. Yes. If you're working on something in this space, feel free to reach out to me. Um, 
you can, like I said, follow me on Twitter. My DMs are open. Hit me up. Always happy to grab, you know, coffee and, and really dig in. Um, we don't have to talk anything about banking, right? Like I would much rather dig into. Like, I forget that you're a banker. I honestly, I always forget. I dress this. like a banker, right? Um, you know, frankly, if you had told me three years ago that I'd be working for a bank, I probably would have laughed you out of the room. Um, but yeah, so if you're if you're in New York and you're working on something, um, and I can be helpful. Please ping me. Um, I'm always happy to geek out on new tech. You know what's crazy? He's not even kidding. Like, that's the best thing about the New York startup community. You got people like Jake. I'm here. A bunch of other builders are here and we're, we want to help. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us in the wild this week. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or however you listen. Catch you next week. And as always, stay blessed, my friends.